So I, I've shared before one of my favorite sociological studies uh, is something called the Grant Study. The Grant Study is, I think, 75 plus years running, so it's the longest uh, study ever of this nature. And um, it began in Harvard in 1938 with 268 people. And they picked 268 people and they followed them from their teens to when they were like in their 80s and 90s. And they wanted to try to assess what was the measure of happiness, like what leads to happiness in our lives. And so they did medical histories and they looked at health records. They did brain scans of these people. They did interviews again and again and again with family and friends. They got every piece of data they could possibly get um, from these 268 individuals. Uh, and then they compiled all that stuff and they said, well, what is correlated with happiness? What about their lives was predictive that they would have happy lives? And it was interesting how many things were not correlated with happiness. So they found that happiness did not increase with greater wealth or with achievement or with success. Happiness um, was not connected to fame or reputation or even social impact, like how much good you could do in the world. In fact, the one consistent metric that was predictive of happiness was something really simple, lasting relationships. Lasting relationships was the thing that was predictive of happiness over the course of, of someone's life. Now, there was a guy who led that study for 30 of its 75 plus years named George Valent. And he said uh, there were two pillars of their research that predicted happiness. He said the first is love and the second is finding a way of coping with life that does not push love away. The first is love. The second is finding a way of coping with life that does not push love away. So I'm interested in thinking about this this morning, about um, those ways that we um, develop lasting relationships and how we love and cope with life in a way that doesn't push love away. So on July 26, 2003, uh, Krista Jennifer Bentz and James Irwin Gates II got married. That's me and my wife. And um, as you might imagine, it was like a big deal. I mean, so, you know, when you're a, almost a pastor, I was in seminary, so I'm in pastor training. So I couldn't do just a simple, regular little wedding, right? I had to do everything. So, of course, we had, we were in Minnesota. We were in this beautiful downtown Presbyterian Church, Westminster Presbyterian Church in Minneapolis. And we had, you know, my six groomsmen and her six bridesmaids and family and friends and um, again you know just because I wanted to make it special we had not one and not two but three hymns that we sung in the course of the wedding we did communion for everyone of course in the congregation who was involved and and I had not one but two pastors who were involved in the service and we had two different sermons right which kind of might have been overdoing it. Um, it was kind of a long wedding, and, and maybe I've shared before, but uh, there was a point where one of my groomsmen actually passed out because it just kept going and going and going. 
And, and fortunately, we were standing boy, girl, boy, girl. So the girls on either side of him just grabbed him and held him up because you know, the show must go on. Uh, I think if he'd been standing with the guys, they would have dropped him and laughed. But anyway, uh, it was kind of a long wedding. It was kind of intense. Um, but by far, not, not the scariest part, but the most intense part was that moment when uh, I turned to Krista and I said, I, Jim, take you, Krista, to be my wife. And I promise before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health as long as we both shall live. And it was intense because that's a promise without condition. Right? It's a promise where I say, uh, no matter what circumstances might come in our life, this one thing will be stable. Right? This one thing will be firm. This is our, our anchor in our life together. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a risky thing to do, right? What if things do change? What if circumstances do uh, twist in a way you didn't expect? Um, are you going to be stuck in a decision you didn't want to be stuck in? I often think, thank goodness I got Krista to make that promise to me in 2003 because like three years later, all my hair was gone, right? And she had no idea that was coming. So praise God, right? I, 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 I snickered her into doing that before the, the truth came out. Uh, so much has changed uh, in our life together over the last 17 years. Um, and, and, and I have to think as we look at our world today, right, that there are many people that would say, isn't it better just to keep your options open, right? Isn't it better just to say, hey, what if something better comes along? Or what if something dramatic changes that, that makes this a relationship you don't want to be a part of anymore? Um, isn't it kind of reckless to, to make unconditional promises? This is what the disciples say to Jesus, right? Did you notice? Um, they say to Jesus, um, if this is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. There was an ongoing debate in Jewish culture at the time about um, what the appropriate standards for divorce were, and um, there were two positions, and one position was basically what Jesus says, right? That sure, divorce can be appropriate in situations of unchastity or abuse or abandonment or whatever, um, the, the other position, the more popular position, um, was that, and remember, this is a very patriarchal culture, so divorce is one way, right? Men divorce women in Jewish culture. Women don't get to divorce men. Uh, so that a man could divorce his wife um, for anything indecent. That's what Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 says. Uh, and there were rabbis that defined indecent very broadly. So um, the school of Hillel said that um, quote, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him, end quote. So if dinner comes back a little bit burned, be careful, right, because that could be the end. Um, there's another rabbi of the same school, uh, Rabbi Akiba, who later added, um, she may divorce, quote, even if he found another fairer than she, end quote. So Jesus is in this world that actually sounds a little bit like our world, right? Where, where uh, for a lot of folks, marriage is less marriage and more like friends with benefits. And, and, and friends with benefits is, is a, a term we kind of created, but it's not original to us. And it's, of course, the idea that we want to have the, the fun parts of a relationship without all of that difficult, hard stuff. Uh, because Maybe those promises are like a straitjacket. Maybe those promises are like a ball and chain. Maybe they hold us back. So I, I don't know where you are in this um, conversation. I don't know if uh, 
maybe you're saying, I don't need a piece of paper to prove that our love is real. Or maybe you're married and you're thinking, what did I get into? Um, or maybe you're single and thinking, um, boy, marriage seems like a really bad idea with all that commitment. Um, maybe you've been through the experience of divorce and said, boy, it's just too scary to do that again. Maybe you watched your parents go through that experience uh, and you're not sure you can trust that whole idea of marriage um, and commitment. And yet, we have one of these moments where Scripture and science both come together to tell us that lasting relationships bring us joy, right? They bring us peace. They bring us purpose. So I, I want to think about two kinds of lasting relationships that I think are worth the risk. Um, and they come back both to this verse that Jesus quotes from Genesis where he says, um, so they are no longer two but one flesh. So I spent a lot of time um, talking with folks who are going into marriage about what marriage means and, and weddings, what weddings could look like. And um, there are often a lot of really meaningful things we do in the context of a wedding. Um, a few weeks ago, I can't remember, it was three weeks ago, I had the privilege of doing a wedding for Kyle Zableski and his wife, Laura, his now wife, Laura. And they had a really awesome symbolic act they did in their wedding. So they had this, this cross that was made of cords, uh, three cords, and they braided it together, right? One for each of them and one for Christ um, to, to make the cross and symbolize this interweaving of their lives. Oh, I just loved it. It was so cool. Um, I, I have also seen at other weddings a bunch of symbols. One of my favorite is the sand ceremony. You guys seen this before, maybe? Um, I, for no particular reason, I, I picked colors of green and yellow sand. And I don't know if that means anything to anyone, but whatever, that's what I picked. So, um, and and the, the sand ceremony, you have a, a jar of sand that represents each one of your lives, right? And um, I, I love this idea that, that somehow we, as they come together, we, we start something new, right? No longer two, but one. What's really important for me as I think about what marriage means is that um, it, it's not the, the um, superficial present stuff that brings us together, right? So it is great that, you know, we share some mutual attraction, right? And that, that brings us closer. Uh, and it is great that we have some chemistry that's really important and that brings us closer. And it is wonderful if we have shared friends and some sort of shared network and, and common interests. Um, and it is wonderful if we love each other, right? All that's really good. But we're still two different people, right? Drawn together by all kinds of great things, but still two different people. Um, and then something extraordinary happens, right? And then we choose to make this promise, this commitment to each other to say, um, no matter what happens, I will be with you. And, and that kind of promise, that kind of commitment frees us to be ourselves, to be honest, to be unafraid. I don't have to be strong or perfect or confident all the time with my wife. I don't have to worry about what might change or how it could upend my life. Um, I don't have to worry that some really handsome guy with a full head of hair will swoop in and mess everything up, right? Because um, I, I have this incredible commitment with my wife, um, not that she loves me, but that she will love me. Not that I just love her now, but that I will love her. And, and I think this is the difference between uh, friends with benefits 
and a lasting relationship, right? That, that one calls me into a, a future-oriented promise and covenant. Uh, the other has all the appealing surface-level benefits but neglects the main ingredient, uh, like a cake made with salt instead of sugar, right? Looks great, but something critical is missing. What's beautiful about this for me is that um, when we make those promises to each other, it, it is really irrevocable, right? There's um, no getting this sand back out again without crazy work and trauma. Uh, it's an unbelievable promise to say that this is how our lives will look, right? Interwoven and connected and, and somehow miraculously together with God and each other forever. It's a lot of sand. All right, we're going to just pour the rest of that in there. Okay. Come on, sand. All right, well, eh. Good enough. All right, and it's possible the metaphor breaks down at the end there. All right. Uh, so uh, there are only a few decisions in our life that are like that, right, that are um, irrevocable and that um, cause us to these future-oriented commitments uh, only a few that shape our lives on a daily basis. And I think that's why marriage is such an effective metaphor for God's relationship with us. Right? And again and again in Scripture, we hear that language, that there is nothing that you can ever do to break God's promise to you. Nothing you can ever do to lose His love. Nowhere you can run where He will not follow you. God's promise to us is as irrevocable as anything we can imagine. I, I love these words from Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness is not dark to you, and night is as bright as day, for the darkness is as light to you. See, what, what God does is He says, um, I will give up um, being just who I used to be so I can be someone new with you. And you can't lose my love, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, and this is what we do when we make these covenants with each other. We give up just being myself, so that we can be ourselves. Now, here's the key. Um, marriage is not the only lasting relationship that we forge in our lives. Um, there are a whole bunch of them uh, that are incredibly important, um, but I want to highlight one other that I would call an optional relationship. My, my parents are stuck with me, right? That's not very optional. And I love my kids, but if I didn't, I'd be stuck with them too, right? But there, there are a few other optional relationships like marriage where we make these, these incredible commitments that free us to live as we, who we, are, as we truly are. Um, and, and I want to think about one other particular one this morning. So, so think about Jesus for a moment, and I want you to ask, um, after Jesus' ministry is over, after his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, what does Jesus leave behind? Uh, 
Think about somebody like Moses, okay? Moses is an easy one. What does Moses leave behind? Well, Moses leaves behind this expansive written law about how we are to relate with God, right? The first five books of the Bible. And he leaves behind this massive mobilized movement of people, right? Basically a, an army of people ready to enter into the promised land who are, who are ready to do God's work, right? So he leaves behind the Bible. He leaves behind this, this people Israel. What does David leave behind when he dies? Well, David leaves behind a, a nation at the height of its strength, and he leaves behind the greatest, as we mentioned earlier, hymnal and prayer book we have ever written in 3,000 years. When Solomon dies, he leaves behind a temple to God that will stand for hundreds of years. Um, when Ezra and Nehemiah uh, die, they leave behind a restored temple, a restored city, uh, written history of the movement of God. What does Jesus leave behind? Just one thing, right? He leaves, uh, okay, Holy Spirit is a good one, um, but, but I'm going to say friends, right? He leaves behind friends. He didn't write anything down. He doesn't have any army. He doesn't build any buildings. He doesn't uh, conquer any nations. All he leaves behind are friends. The legacy of the life of Jesus Christ is friendship. That, that's incredible to me to think about um, that, that Jesus somehow thought that more important than, than writing or conquering or building was these relationships that would last, right? The friendships he built with, with Peter and Andrew and James and John and with Mary Magdalene and Martha and Mary and Lazarus, that, that somehow those were the legacy he thought was most necessary for the future of his world. And I would suggest to you um, that they're um, not just friends, right? If, if we can take a term I don't like and turn it into some, one I do, I think they're friends with benefits, right? There was a, a British newspaper that once offered a prize for the best definition of a friend. They got thousands of answers. Uh, among some of those were the following, quote, one who multiplies joys divides grief and whose honesty is completely beyond question. Quote, one who understands our silence. Quote, a watch that beats true for all time and never runs down. Uh, but the winning definition read, quote, a friend is the one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. I love that. The friend is the one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. When the whole world abandons Jesus, runs from him, right? When these crowds of thousands of people who were there for his miracles and who cheer him as he walks into Jerusalem, when they are all gone, those who are left, right? Those are the friends. I don't know if you noticed this, but in um, our psalm this morning, um, the Bible uses friendship sort of like it uses marriage as a metaphor for God's relationship with us. So it says uh, in verse, chapter, uh, Psalm 25, verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes His covenant known to them. This reminds me of the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. I call you friends. In the context of Scripture, uh, this is a, a hugely significant thing. So there are, as far as I can recall, only two people in the entire Old Testament ever called friends of God. 
One of those is Abraham, and one of those is Moses. And Jesus comes along and he says, yeah, Abraham and Moses, yeah, they were a big deal, but, but you're going to be on that level, right? You're no longer a servant. You're no longer a follower. You're no longer um, just a worshiper. You're going to be a friend of mine. You're going to be a friend of God. You're going to be a friend with some benefits. Uh, and the benefit is that incredible forward promise, right? Not just that I love you, but that I will love you. With that comes all kinds of responsibility uh, and uh, the the call of committed friendship, of being um, friends with godly benefits, means that we have to do more uh, than um, just hang out and watch games and have fun together, right? We are called to elevate each other, to serve each other, to love each other in in self-sacrificing ways. Our church has a couple of Boy Scout troops, and so because of that, every year I have to do this online youth protection training to get recertified, and it's really good. This week I was doing a section on bullying, and in the bullying training that the Boy Scouts do, they make a distinction about the best way to avoid or Uh, discourage bullying in a community. And they said, um, it is no longer the case that we believe that we stop bullies by teaching kids to stand up for themselves or to speak up for themselves or uh, to be confident in themselves. That's, That's no longer the solution. Now we have to learn to teach our kids to stand up for each other and speak up for each other and look out for each other. Not to be, they use the language, not to be bystanders, but upstanders. And I love the idea that part of what it means to be a friend in a Christian sense is to look out for each other, right? To stand up for each other when necessary. Um, But also, I need friends who will not just stand up for me, but stand up to me, right? Who will say, hey, Jim, uh, because I love you, because you know you can't lose my friendship, um, let me tell you where I feel like you're going off the rails here. Uh, And and I got to tell you, there is no greater gift than to have a friend in my life who, when I am straying from God's will, will call me back and say, hey, Jim, let's reassess this. Um, what happens to our, our friendships um, when our peers challenge us to be better, right? We, we all expect our bosses to do that, right, and our parents to do that. Um, what happens when our friends do that? Who do we become in Christ in those situations? Uh, I, I think we've all experienced this, right? We've all had the experience of a friend um, who has maybe moved away or we've moved away because of work or family reasons. And over time, it becomes hard to stay in contact. And, and over the weeks or months or years, we sort of drift apart. Uh, and then, have you ever gotten back together with one of those lifelong friends? And it's just kind of like you're right where you left off, right? Where you jump back in and it's almost as no, no time has passed at all. And I thought about why that is, and I think it's because that we, we make these, these very informal covenants with our friends to say, hey, whoever you are, whoever you will be, I will still be there for you. I will still love you then as I do now. And, and that is an unbelievably sacred and God-like thing that we do. So I want to ask you this morning to, to take an inventory of your uh, relationships and to see um, where you have um, those uh, covenants, those lasting relationships, those friendships that 
are godlike, right? That reflect somehow the irrevocable love of God and that are future-oriented, that move you from um, just loving someone now to a promise to love them in the future, come what may. Because I believe this is the call of God. I believe the call of God is to move from myself to ourselves and to join in to what Jesus left behind, this incredible movement of people loving and committed to each other in such a way um, that we can't be separated again. Um, And I believe this is the hope, minus the stuff I spilled on the table, this is the hope not just for our our marriages and our friendships, but it's, it's, it's the hope for every human connection, right? That the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons who are so inseparable that they are also one God, calls us in all of our human relationships to be no longer two but one, to be bound together in marriage and in friendship and as parents and as children and as churches and maybe even in this incredibly difficult season in our world, maybe even in a godly way as nations, right? To say, whatever our differences may be, uh, God calls us to be one. And I believe that if we can take that incredible step, if we can choose uh, those future-oriented promises and enter into irrevocable covenants with those around us, we have the privilege of being worthy of the work of Christ. We have the privilege of being those that not only um, carry on the work of Christ, but invite others into it, uh, and that we can be a people that are not about myself, but about ourselves and God's self. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.